Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast brought to you by Martel Cognac. I'm Joe Bullmore and I'm joined this afternoon at Mark's Club by Adam Ludwin, the co-founder of Captify, a leader in search intelligence. After dropping out of university, Adam founded his first digital media business from a computer in his mother's hallway at the age of 21. In just a few short years, his company Captify has gone on to work with some of the world's biggest advertisers, including Apple, American Express, Microsoft and Nike. He now runs a team of more than 200 people across the world and recently raised over £10 million for further expansion. In today's episode, Adam tells us the importance of showing your vulnerabilities, how search intelligence predicted Brexit and the rise of Trump, and why he keeps a photo from his first day of school on his bedside table. Adam, thanks very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sometimes we have people on the podcast who sell popcorn, sometimes people who run gyms, which are all kind of things we deal with in our day-to-day lives. But you do something called search intelligence, which maybe we're not completely aware of or familiar with. Can you explain to us what search intelligence means? Sure, sure. So I guess uh, the core focus for the business is understanding user search behavior better than any company in the world and then uh, using that uh, intelligence to power uh, media activation so advertising for the world's leading brands uh, and also to power insights for those world's leading brands uh, so really telling them everything they didn't know about the audiences uh, trends and positive negative searches and uh, brand sentiment and competitive analysis so telling them everything wow. uh, they didn't get the chance to kind of see through any other insights platform before okay so you could tell coca-cola for example how much people like a new flavor of their Coke based on yeah. how they act on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we go kind of one step further than that, where we can actually start to uh, predict what kind of trends uh, wow. Coca-Cola would like to see in order to uh, build kind of new products against that. So absolutely. Incredible. I mean, yeah, I can't even begin to imagine that how that works. <laughs> but we'll, we'll get onto the technical stuff in a bit. Sure. But you didn't always do this. You, were, you, in fact, hopped through a few jobs, didn't you, in your early yes. career? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So, so I guess uh, I I kind of uh, followed the footsteps that I, I thought uh, everyone should follow at that time because I was kind of surrounded by it. Uh, and I, I made the, the choice to go to university. And uh, the reason why I kind of went to university and the reason why I chose I chose this course called Business and IT. And the reason why I chose it was because uh, I just read the prospectus uh, and I saw about um, this ex-pupil that studied business and IT and, and uh, uh, became a broker. And at that time, I was like, great. Well, I really like the sound of broking. Okay. Um, so, uh, so I'll just do business and IT and I'll become a broker. Uh, so, uh, so I went to uh, a Manchester Metropolitan University and uh, studied this business and IT. And as soon as I was there, I kind of realized that actually I was really there for the wrong reasons. Right. Um, and I had to start questioning, did I really need to be there to get to where I wanted to be? At that time, it was kind of broking in the city. Um, so... Uh, kind of sat down with my parents and kind of told them that, you know, after the first term, I didn't think it was it was right that I kind of stuck around there. And I think I could kind of get where I wanted to be without kind of going through that um, that 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 educational uh, next phase. So for for me, um, I kind of left uh, university uh, after kind of the first term. So I was there for three, three, four months. And um, I kind of uh, started to look at what opportunities there was for someone mm. like me going into the city. So at that time, uh, I just had to try and find someone I could speak to. And I, I spoke to a, a, a friend of a friend of a friend who yeah. was kind of in the city. And I said, how did you get there? And he said, just, you know, prove you can sell uh, and prove you're the best at something and then you can get a job in the city. So I took that very literally. 
Uh, and I was like, okay, so I, I tried to find a sales job. And, uh, and I ended up uh, doing um, work for an estate agent called Aaron Estates. They were, uh, at that time, um, uh, the largest independently owned estate agent in the UK. Um, so I kind of started on the, uh, when I was 18. I think I was 18 years old when I started there. Um, and, um, and just started selling. Yeah. Uh, were you good at it? Uh, yeah, so, so so by month two, I'd pretty much kind of broken wow. many records and was kind of top of the leaderboard uh, for the six months I was there. And then I took that um, I took that kind of uh, that that kind of record and went into a, a company called uh, Tullet Prebon, who uh, at that time uh, were I think they probably still are the second large industrial brokers in the world. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I ended up getting a job uh, in kind of the, on the largest open plan trading floor in Europe um, as a kind of trainee broker. So. You were kind of a natural at selling then. It was something that you didn't have a kind of playbook. You just went into it and used your instincts. Yeah, I, I guess I've, all, I've always kind of been selling from a very young age all right. the time. Okay. I mean, my, my, my parents had like uh, fashion shops when I was younger. I used to go in there and just try and sell for them mm. age, you know, from six, seven years old um, and just tell these ladies that were wearing these dresses how, pre- how pretty they looked <laughs> and so they would buy it. Um, and, then, uh, and then from school, you know, I was definitely kind of, known as more the Dell boy uh, and kind of came in and, and everyone would be like, well, what are you selling today? Yeah. And at times I think I got in a bit of trouble because of it. But, uh, but I think the, the, uh, the kind of teachers never really kind of told me off fully because I think they always quite appreciated yeah. that entrepreneurial aspect of it. So, uh, so yeah, I've always kind of been kind of naturally selling throughout, throughout my life. And can you teach that? Do you have kind of tips that you give to your employees now? Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, everyone's kind of very, very different. And as it happens, um, you know, our industry is a very different type of selling. Um, and it's, it's very consultative. Uh, and I think that, you know, what the, a lot of the salespeople in our organization are really known for is the fact that they don't just solely know our product. They know how our product sits into the wider ecosystem and really understanding that, that, uh, that positioning. Mm. Um, so they can kind of go in and speak very eloquently about what's happening around them um, and then kind of focusing in on the, the problem um, that exists and how a business like Catfire can solve them problems uh, with a, a lot more uh, specific discussions around it. So I think that's uh, the, the nature about okay. how people kind of are, are really kind of selling. But when you're in the city, that didn't really kind of give you what you're after you you weren't particularly happy there necessarily yeah i think uh, l- like most things you know when you kind of hear about something in your late teens you you don't truly know what it's about and it, and uh, the truth is at that time why was i attracted to the world of broking um it, it was the money uh, i heard about the money and the lifestyle i was like great mm. um and uh, and i think the reality hit me uh, when I kind of started kind of working there, and I was I was basically what's called a board boy. So you have these these boards, these whiteboards going across like these whole walls, uh, and then you have you know fifty odd traders just shouting out <laughs> shouting out all these kind of trades going on between wow. between banks, and and you can't afford to get anything wrong uh, because it, on average we were trading uh, between eight and ten billion sterling a day, uh, and one trade could be a billion, the other trade could be a hundred million. So you got to listen to all these people shouting out everything to you and try and prioritize that in your mind and wow. then obviously kind of uh, uh, put that on the board literally you're writing it you're writing you're writing on the board which is crazy that it's not it yeah wasn't, it, it's not, crazy, it might be automated now but back then 10 years ago it wasn't automated wow so uh, so you know they're relying on you so you can't afford to get something wrong otherwise you've just cost someone 100 million god so uh, so yeah it's a uh, pretty That's intense crazy. but i think when i was there um it was really obvious to me that you, you had to wait for people to retire or die <laughs> to kind of inherit lines 
Um, and, uh, and the longer people were there, the more lines that they would inherit. So you kind of started to inherit lines when someone would move up to someone that has been there for a while and, and, and kind of moved on. Um, so it kind of hit me that no matter how good I was at this, I wasn't going to progress the way that I wanted to. You know, I, I would have to kind of sit there and be happy sitting there for 20, 30 years until I got the lines that kind of made me happy. Uh, when I say lines, the banks that okay. made me happy. Um, so, um, so yeah, for me, I, I definitely didn't feel in control of my own destiny there. So uh, I felt that it was best to you know, pack that in. And I, I still remember um, handing him, handed him my notice to the, the director at the time. And he said, I thought this is what you always wanted. And I said, you know, so did I, but, but I really do want to be in control of my own destiny. Um, and I kind of walked out of there four months after starting, five months after starting, really, truly not knowing what I was going to do with my life. Um, yeah. And it, I was, it was, uh, if, if there was ever a time of being lost, that, that was that time. Yeah. So you, you took an online course, am I right, in, in kind of affiliate marketing? Yes. Was that so, just a stab in the dark, something... You didn't really know anything about that. Yes, yeah, so, so so it was it was actually a, it was actually a, from that broking uh, job I kind of moved into recruitment, uh, and the reason why I, I moved into the recruitment was because I knew I could fall back on selling, uh, but also this owner of this recruitment company was doing exactly what I was doing in the city, and he wanted to be a broker and realised that he wanted to be in control of his own destiny and set up this this recruitment company, um, and said, well, yeah, I've made that mistake, but you know, recruitment is where I kind of found my calling, so you know, come and work for me. Um, so I went in and worked for them. Um, and then, uh, again, kind of the first kind of few months, I started kind of breaking records. And uh, what kind of happened there was, was quite interesting. It's very traditional in, in many, many companies because often a good seller just inherits the sales team. Mm. Uh, that doesn't make them a good manager. Um, but, but people, you know, try to keep them engaged and they're just given people. And I think at that time I was 19 years old, um, and I started managing a team of eight to 10 people. Uh, some of them almost doubled my age. So I was really kind of thrown into kind of the deep end on that. And, and whilst, I was, uh, whilst I was kind of working there, um, yeah, I came across the internet marketing course and uh, this internet marketing uh, training that, that basically was, was for dummies. And I didn't know anything about, about that at all. Um, but uh, I kind of came across this course based on the fact that um, it was, uh, you probably kind of see these courses flying around about this yeah. one guy that makes 100,000 a day. Um, and I was like, okay, well, this is probably... Nothing, but at least yeah, at least I should kind of uh, take a look through. It was actually my dad, that, my dad that sent me the email. Uh, so I looked at this guy and looked at what he was doing, uh, and actually kind of uh, discovered that this did exist, and and uh, and what he was doing wasn't wasn't anything that I didn't think uh, wasn't achievable for me. Um, so whilst I was doing recruitment, I started uh, I started to uh, look at this 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 training course, and I kind of spent uh, at the time it was a, a couple of thousand uh, on this training course. Um, and started to teach myself the basics of at that time affiliate marketing. Mm. So uh, I was uh, working uh, until 8 p.m. Um, for this recruitment company. I was kind of coming home, studying until 2, 3 in the morning, uh, and then doing that for a series of, of a few months. Wow. Was that exhausting? It was pretty tiring, yeah, to say the least. Um, but but I, I knew that I wanted to um, do my own thing. I just, at that time, I didn't really know what, what avenue I was going to go down. And when did you start to realize that there was something there that you could make money from? After that three months, uh, I, I made uh, about fifty pound. Okay, um, not a bad return. And yes, absolutely. And I, I think I think uh, I think for me that fifty pound was actually very significant because it it proved that I could do it, and I I'd proven the concept. And after I kind of realized that I kind of 
could make money doing that, um, I decided to uh, sit my parents down again and tell them that uh, that you know I was going to kind of make a, a move away from uh, recruitment and uh, going to set up uh, an internet marketing company. Um, and at that time, I was obviously living at home. I just turned twenty-one, and uh, I had to kind of set up this computer in my mum's hallway and uh, and started to. Um, uh, do that full time and I, I think uh, I kind of really threw myself in the deep end that was kind of you know, breakfast lunch and dinner sat at that computer wow. uh, no weekends and and you know from from that moment actually in my 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 it was my girlfriend now my wife um, you know it, it kind of it kind of started to be apparent that I, I could potentially have some problems breaking away from work because um, I was I was kind of get up at two three in the morning and check stats and do a few hours of work come back to bed and I just kind of you know, lost kind of wow. a, lot, a lot of that stability that you kind of need in that personal life. Um, and so, uh, and so, uh, yeah, for me, I, I kind of at, at that time turned around to uh, uh, my uh, my now wife and just said, okay, you know what, I, I, weekends, yeah, that's going to be our time. I'm going to break away okay. from that. So what was driving you in those in those moments when you were getting up at 2 a.m.? What's what's making you do that? It was, uh, at, at that time, you know, it was, it was really the excitement of it all um, because, it was at my risk what I was doing there. I was I was uh, you know, buying media and then kind of being paid based on performance. So I had to make that work. And when you found something working, um, obviously the majority of stuff doesn't work. But when you find that one golden nugget that does work, um, that's kind of uh, extremely exhilarating. Yeah. And uh, and for me, you know, when I kind of started to find these 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 pockets of golden nuggets, I, a lot of that came from international, so US and Australia. Um, so, you know, the time zone is obviously very different. So I wanted to kind of be on top of that. And that's when I started to you know, lose my sleep patterns. A bit. Okay, yeah. What were those golden nuggets? What, what did you worked out that other people hadn't? I, I, th- I think that actually, you know, what I kind of, uh, I've always kind of said, you, there, there, is a, there is two things that, that make an entrepreneur, um, common sense and urgency. And uh, for me, I, I really felt that I kind of found them areas through common sense. Um, so, for example, uh, I remember one of the first campaigns I really kind of got traction with uh, was was a Taste Card. Uh, oh, yeah. And it was kind of the, the two for one meals. Um, so all I simply did was look at all the restaurants that Taste Card worked with uh, and then uh, bid on Google AdWords at that time to show an advert to anyone that typed in Pizza Express or Prezzo. Okay. So naturally, anyone typed in Pizza Express or Prezzo uh, would see kind of how they can get a two for one uh, voucher. Uh, so things like that, which which I was surprised that no one was really doing, but just really just trying to pl- apply, you know, common sense to to marketing. Yeah, and that wasn't Captify, was it? That was before Captify. No, so that that was uh, before Captify. What was that one called? Um, so I, I thought to myself, um, what name could I uh, get that allowed me to create a much larger perception? Okay. Um, and I come across uh, the name multinational marketing. <laughs> wow. That didn't sound like it was me sitting in my mum's hallway uh, <laughs> working on working on a computer. So I, I called that multinational marketing. That was my first company. Okay, great. So how did multinational marketing become Captify? So so what, what happened for multinational marketing was um, you know things really took off, and I became. A super affiliate, essentially. So I was spending, I was spending, you know, over ten thousand dollars a day uh, whilst I was kind of sitting at home. So how I much? Start, what's your return on that? Uh, at, at, at times, I can get one hundred percent return on that. Wow. Um, so I started to, uh, I started to really accelerate, kind of, you know, that area, and started to uh, do a lot larger scale media buys. Um, so uh, when I started to um, uh, buy media, 
and actually started to build relationships with with sellers. And that's actually how I met my business partner at Captify, Dom. Mm. Um, so I became uh, one of his largest clients um, and we really hit it off. Uh, and we started to have conversations about, about um, you know, what would be great from a demand side, what would be great from a supply side. I wanted to get a better return on investment for, for my money. Um, he wanted to sell something that was more dynamic, more exciting. Um, so uh, we started to really delve into uh, what made um, Google, who were obviously the largest success in, in advertising, uh, what made them so successful. And then honed in on the fact that you know that was all powered by search data. Mm. Um, so that's when we started to grasp the concept of using search data in different channels. And so Dom then became your business partner, co-founder. Yes, correct. What was it about him that you saw? What were his attributes that made you think this guy's good to go into business with? Um, I, th- I think that um, I-, I think that it sounds pretty strange, but I think even when we we were kind of working together, and I was his client, we would have. You know, real strong debates on certain things. You know, most people w- would be kind of fearful to debate yeah. stuff openly, kind of with kind of clients there. But we kind of naturally had that openness with each other, and I think more importantly, we had you know this shared vision of what we wanted to achieve. Um, and and it was a, it seemed to be kind of a very natural fit actually. So uh, so uh, you know, for me, he kind of had uh, he had kind of you know great contacts and you know a, a real kind of solid. Uh, knowledge around kind of products and what existed and what the how the ecosystem looked like um so uh, so it, you know that kind of played very well to kind of my strengths at that time which was obviously kind of buying media yeah and did you need to raise money at that point or had you made enough with your previous venture yes yeah, so, so we self-funded it um okay. kind of from the start um and uh, and really wanted to kind of make sure that we kind of proved the concept before kind of going out uh, to raise um the the you know series a and series b uh, that we continue to do the following following couple of years later. Yeah, and am I right in thinking that in the kind of first or or first couple of months you actually made your year what you expected to make in the first year? Uh, yeah, so so, uh, so I think what was, what started to happen uh, and it became very natural was that when we kind of started to go out with this offering, which was obviously targeting users uh, based on search behaviours, people just understood and people got it. Uh, so by month two, we were working with the likes of Hilton Hotels. Um, and you know, really leveraging a lot of Dom's contacts at that time, um, and started to get a lot of traction within the agencies. So, mm. so yeah, we uh, we really kind of started to you know, smash the numbers um, and and definitely exceed expectations uh, sooner than we expected. Yeah, and can you talk me through the process when someone like Hilton comes to you from that first meeting? What are you trying to work out then, and then how do you put that into place? So, I guess um, in that scenario, you know, Hilton are naturally trying to. Uh, be as efficient as possible with their marketing spend. So, uh, so at that time, obviously, they were kind of focused on how they can get results and how they can get people booking Hilton hotels. Um, so uh, they would come to, to Captify, or will Captify will go to them and show Hilton how uh, a better targeted solution will allow them to get uh, more bookings for the Hilton hotel. Okay, brilliant. And how do you price that up? Do you get a kind of commission on each? Search or how does it work? So it's paid. It's uh, it's based on a, called a CPM, so cost per a thousand impressions. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, and then they would obviously have a target of uh, what's usually referred to kind of as CPA, um, a cost per action uh, that they need to uh, make in return of spending that budget. Um, so they'll have a target of say you know, for every new user that we get to to book uh, a room at Hilton Hotels that we don't want that costing us any more than fifty pound. Mm. Um, so we have to kind of work towards them goals. Uh, and then focus on making sure that that kind of meets that that goal of uh, being below fifty pound for them. Yeah. So it, 
does it ever not work? I mean, it seems like once you've set a target, you've always kind of worked out how to hit it. Have you ever had had any times where you haven't been able to fix someone's problem? Uh, yeah, totally. I, I, th- I think I think yeah, there's a lot of times where where advertisers will uh, come with highly highly ambitious targets okay, right. that that you know aren't necessarily achievable. Uh, it's our job to really kind of manage expectations and make sure they know what is achievable. You know, someone that's kind of coming in and launching a brand new hotel and expects to get the same return as a Hilton, um, you know, that, that they're, they're the people that really need to um, understand how this all works and it's our job to make sure we, we kind of really educate them on that. Um, so yeah, there's definitely been some, uh, some very ambitious, mm. uh, ambitious goals set that, that sometimes uh, are not achievable. Yeah, how many clients do you manage at any one time? Um, so um, right now, uh, I believe we have uh, close to 300 advertisers wow. globally. Amazing. What were the, the big ones early on? What were the big milestones for you? Um, in terms of clients one or? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I think, uh, to, to be honest, they, they really came thick and fast, uh, actually. Um, uh, I, I think Hilton was obviously kind of the first major brand that, that kind of we, we got traction with. But, you know, since then, um, you know, we worked with, I think it's 80% of the world's um, largest advertising spenders. Wow. Um, so from your VWs um, through to through to your more specific targeting, your Dysons, uh, through to kind of travel and uh, and uh, and uh, top retail brands. So so yeah, it really does vary. Uh, but I, I think what kind of happened you know, back then was was you start to kind of get traction in a certain area and you start to really kind of delve into that area. And then that was uh, mm. you know if you look at kind of travel for example, um, you know we really kind of focused in on making sure we're working with many of the, the world's leading pr- travel brands. Uh, and then after the first couple of years, we've obviously uh, built a, a real kind of uh, wealth of data that can service all these verticals. Mm. Um, so we really kind of specialise now on working with you know, all brands and all verticals globally. You grew incredibly fast, as far as I can tell. How many employees did you have in month one and how many do you have now? Actually, we, we actually hired kind of a handful of people at the same time. Um, so obviously myself and Dom, at the start, um, and uh, and we hired about a team of five people, um, and then we kind of grew that over the first uh, twelve to eighteen months. We grew that to a team of ten people, um, and that's where we went out went out to our first uh, Series A fundraise. Since then, uh, you know, we've kind of grown dramatically. Uh, we're now at over two hundred people globally across eight markets. And what's really nice is, you know, them handful of people that joined us right at the start are still here today. Um, so uh, so they've obviously been on that journey with us, which has been. Uh, incredibly rewarding. Yeah. Have you found it maybe difficult being a younger leader um, when some of your employees might be, as you say, twice your age? Yeah, I, I think going going back to uh, going back to you know the recruitment days, um, I, it was kind of thrown on me then to kind of manage people that were double my age, some of them. So so I, I always kind of felt I, I didn't I didn't ever feel that. I was unable to manage someone of a certain age, to be honest, because I, I thought that I've always seen people, regardless of their age, uh, based on a skill set and how good they are at that, that skill set. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'd always uh, recognised that kind of people, regardless of their age, were were turning to me for advice on specific areas. Um, so when we started to kind of hire uh, at, at Captify, um, we started to you know, make sure we could hire these these uh, industry experts, which were inevitably, you know, considerably older than us. Uh, I think that they really had the respect 
uh, for us as founders, uh, being kind of young founders and 23 when I, when we, when I started uh, Catify and Dom was 26. Um, so they kind of really admired our ambitions and wanted to be part of that. But they also realized that we were open about not knowing best and they were there to really advise us on how to do things a lot better than what we were doing. Uh, I think that receptiveness is what obviously kind of makes people feel a lot more comfortable that, you know, we weren't going to try and tell them how to do their job if, if they knew how to do that best. We were there to guide and steer them and, and you apply that vision. So we're working towards the same goals. Yeah. A few months ago, there was a, quite a big kind of furore around Facebook and pe- using people's data essentially to sell to advertisers. Captify must do something fairly similar, leveraging people's data to, to get better results. Is there ever a kind of moral or ethical line that you feel you can't cross? Well, I think I think what actually kind of happened um, with Facebook uh, was the the way that that data was obtained, um, and and you know for us since then and the rise of kind of GDPR, that's obviously uh, led to people clearing up a lot of stuff. And that's actually been a very valuable thing for this industry. Um, so, you know, for us, uh, obviously, we've always been uh, of the strictest compliance. This is opted in data. Um, so so it's been obviously less relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but I think from an ethical standpoint, people uh, have asked for more relevant advertising. Mm. Uh, and I think that people are bombarded for, with adverts that are not relevant or or adverts that uh, maybe kind of they've kind of clicked on something and they're just seeing the same ad over and over even if they've purchased it. And I think that started to create quite a negative experience uh, for for uh, users online. Um, so actually, if we can you know manage that the right way and make sure that you know people are seeing relevant ads, it's you know non intrusive uh, and they're not being bombarded with the same ad regardless of you know them looking at it or uh, or or them kind of purchasing uh, that and still being shown an ad. I think that's what uh, the whole advertising industry really had to kind of make sure they were cleaning up. We've always been obviously very strict on that side as well. Yeah. And what stops Google, for example, uh, doing what you do? They've got all the same data, presumably, that you've got, and they've got access to it straight away. Could they eat your lunch, so to speak? <laughs> uh, so so I, I guess the, the, the link between kind of Google is obviously the search data. Fine. Uh, but actually, when you actually, when you actually look at our businesses, they've evolved very differently. Um, so if you just take, for example, the, the search data that we get. So we will take search data um, from users further in the acceleration phase. So if you were to target a user that had typed in flights to Paris into Google uh, or typed in flights to Paris into Skyscanner or lastminute.com, you'd rather get that user further in the acceleration phase more likely to convert. So we take that, we take that search at a, a much kind of, uh, higher intent level when people are further in the acceleration phase, um, and then the next part of that is is obviously kind of where we where we serve um, uh, that ad, but also the technology around that. So so what's kind of the the core IP of uh, Captify is really understanding this this search intelligence and behaviors, and the way that we do that is by really kind of matching up. Um, previous searches to create a profile on a user so we can actually be a lot more tailored with the advert that we show them. Uh, so for example, if someone types in, if someone has typed in flight to Paris in, in that scenario, um, if previous searches were mass homework or celebrity photos mm. uh, versus someone that's looked at renting a, a car in Paris or looking at a hotel in Paris, you can build up a profile and make a much more relevant uh, advert uh, based on the fact that uh, they're, they're, uh, we could actually give them a quality score, so out of 100, so a 90 out of 100, wow. uh, you know, would bid in real time a lot, a lot of money to show them the ad because they're more relevant versus that user that may have typed that into Google um, who searched for maths homework. 
um, it's a lot less relevant. We wouldn't serve an advert to them at all. So it's much more than purely an individual search. Uh, and then you've got, uh, and then you've got the media that we're kind of serving against. So we can obviously take that search data uh, and and uh, reach that user in in all platforms, including kind of social media platforms. So we're really taking uh, the power of search and applying that into Facebook, for example. Mm. Um, and then uh, and then the final part is obviously the insights that we're kind of sharing off the back of it. So um, so really kind of. Uh, showing uh, real valuable uh, insights. So I, I guess you've got kind of a Google Analytics uh, and Catify's insights yeah. are like, in that sense, Google Analytics on steroids. Okay. I mean, they're, they're a lot more valuable uh, yeah. to, to brands and tell them everything that they can't get through the standard analytics platforms. Do you ever go to brands, to the management team at brands and show them an insight that they're completely blown away by? They might think that the next flavour of Coke should be lime. But actually, people want coffee-flavored Coke, which sounds disgusting. But something like that. So are they ever completely blown away? Recent uh, work that we've done for for P and G, um, they uh, they they had um, uh, one of their uh, products that was was selling not as well as they would have hoped, um, and looked into kind of their their marketing strategies, uh, and they were kind of focused on this this eighteen to twenty four. Uh, age group and females um, so they're really kind of targeting the festivals and and certain kind of like influencers mm. um, so when we kind of actually delved into the data we actually uh, found um, that what they didn't consider was their audience had grown up so the people that were buying that 18 to 24 had now developed into being kind of 24 to 30 uh, so the whole advertising strategy mm. was wrong um, so for us we actually kind of took uh, you know that data kind of shared that with them and then uh, showed them exactly how they should be targeting that new user age group uh, and how we as Catify would be able to target them based on you know the searches that were linked to it such as you know we could tell that from the, the, the searches linked to Pampers and you know other kind of you know more motherly products yeah. um, which they obviously didn't consider um, so so yeah we, we often kind of uh, uh, t- uh, show people kind of very valuable insight that they didn't have any kind of idea of I want to go back to, to what you said about insights. You're kind of building a picture of, a, of an imaginary person, a kind of patchwork picture, but it's all anonymized. It's not, yes. it's not a specific person. Correct. So how, how much do you actually know about that anonymous person? Can you work out their age, where they live? Can you work out their favorite flavor of crisps? Is it that specific? Uh, it's simply a user ID. Okay. So it could be seven three six one four two. Fine. Um, and so, so no, there's, there's no, there's no link to to anything personal. Fine. But you've got a pretty complete picture of of a of a, of a living person who's got different interests. Yep. Wow. Absolutely. Incredible. And how has that how has that changed the way that you act as a user online? Has that changed your outlook on searching for things? Are you ever aware that someone might be using something you're searching to to uh, sell to you? Basically. Yeah, I, I think I'm I'm definitely a. Uh, uh, like there, there's obviously many different types of technologies out there that mm. are using uh, certain data points for targeting, and every so often I, I kind of look at an advert, and, I, and obviously because I know what's happening behind the scenes, I'm mm. very impressed that I'm being I'm, 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 someone's showing me an advert that's actually relevant. Um, so so yeah, and and because. Actually, people don't realise that's happening, and it, it becomes subconscious. And they almost think that seeing that advert, what a coincidence! I was, you know, I was kind of searching for that or or expressing interest in that. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think that I think that uh, knowing what happens behind the scenes, knowing in theory that everything you look at, everything you click on, uh, is more or less someone down the line is being paid for something. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which is, which is obviously very interesting. Yeah, of course. Uh, I want to go now to your kind of advice for entrepreneurs who might be looking to do something similar. And if you were talking to Adam at 18 when he's not sure what he wants to do and he's jumping through jobs and he feels a bit lost, what would you say to him? 
So uh, I would say kind of firstly that uh, you're never too young to, okay. to really kind of go and do this. And I think that people people feel that they need to uh, experience uh, X amount of years doing doing something to really make sure they understand uh, how to how to kind of set up a business in the first place or give them the confidence to do that. Uh, I think for me personally, I've I've been brought up with entrepreneurs around me. My 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 mum has her own business. My my dad had had his own business. Uh, my grandparents had their own business, and my sister has her own business. And I I think that I was always I was always um, shown what was possible, and that I actually I could I could really achieve anything. So by the time I was twenty one, you know, and and I was setting up companies, and everyone looked at me like I was crazy and didn't know what mm. I was doing. Truth is, I didn't know what I was doing, uh, but I didn't know any different. Um, so uh, so for me. If I was looking back at kind of you know my eighteen year old self, I wouldn't necessarily say do things differently, but uh, but um, I, uh, I I definitely would say to many other kind of young inspiring uh, aspiring entrepreneurs to to you know take that leap because um, mm. actually when you're younger that's when you can often afford to take this leap. You know you can't when you actually have a you know a mortgage and, and kids. You know it's a, it's a lot harder to to make a kind of new commitment where you could very well work for x amount of years and, and not earn anything mm. um so so that would kind of be my advice and you know, make that leap do you like to be in the deep end it seems like you kind of like the feeling of being out of your depth yes are you comfortable now with captify um i i, I think i think that every day i go in uh, and i'm learning something yeah um and i think the day that stops yeah, you know, there's there's a massive problem. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's there's so many lessons to be learned when you're kind of pushing, whether it's kind of specific to our industry, or whether it's uh, you know really uh, pushing to be the next billion dollar company. Yeah. Uh, I think that you know when we look at the journey now, and you know that two to two hundred, uh, we've just recently come announced uh, our new chairman uh, a few months back, uh, and uh, this is a, a a guy who you may be familiar with called uh, Tom Rogers. Uh, he was a the ex-president of NBC, so he founded wow. CNBC and many other uh, leading channels. He was the CEO of TiVo um, and uh, sold that a, a couple of years ago. Um, so even now, kind of exposing myself to uh, a new uh, people that can really work closely with us to make sure that we're growing things the right way and experience of growing multi-billion-dollar organizations. Mm. Um, you know, you surround yourself with these people, and you're you know continually learning uh, as well as you know learning on the job. So yeah. I think that's always been uh, very key to me. Make sure I'm surrounding myself with people that you know I'm learning from as well. What are the big innovations in 2019? What are your big plans that are going to keep you feeling challenged? So, uh, you know, for us, uh, this next kind of 12 months, um, we're really kind of focusing on uh, global expansion. So uh, if you look at the last uh, couple of years, we've been um, you know, really predominantly in Europe, but we launched kind of New York two years ago. And we had to essentially build a second head office in New York to make sure we can service the rest of North America. Um, so we're really in growth mode in North America right now. Mm. Uh, and uh, we opened two offices, another two offices alone last quarter. We're going to be opening another two offices this quarter. So we just opened uh, along with New York, Boston uh, and Chicago. Uh, you know, we're now looking at opening Atlanta and you know, possibly other uh, states like LA. Uh, and this is just in the next 90 days. So we really want to make sure we're kind of focused on, on those areas and then starting to kind of really feel for uh, other areas outside of North America and Europe and obviously kind of Asia is very appealing so we're starting mm. to kind of put some fillers out there um, South America is very appealing um, so uh, so we're really looking to you know, take what we've made so successful in, in Europe and, and focus on blowing that up in North America and then bringing that into new continents as well Are there big differences between 
different nationalities in the way that they use search? Or do you notice big kind of differences between American users and English users, for example? Um, I, I, I think there's, there's often a... There's often a uh, uh, a, a misconception that that you could use the same language uh, in okay, Britain yeah. than you can do in the US. Um, for example, uh, auto insurance versus car insurance. Yeah, you know. So so I, so I think that in terms of uh, you know searches, you have to be kind of very familiar with kind of you know the understanding of that. But you know we've obviously kind of automated all of that intelligence uh, to really make sure that we can understand the differences and nuances uh, in countries. Um, but uh, just going back, going back to your, your you know, previous question uh, as well, uh, when it comes to kind of the next 12 months, what's been really interesting over, over the last uh, couple of years especially is um, what we've actually managed to do with these insights uh, for, uh, for people and brands and, and com- companies out, outside of just the advertising landscape. Mm. Um, so we kind of get inundated with people trying to uh, 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 get us to kind of predict kind of what's going to happen since, you know, we, we, we uh, a few years back, we uh, the first kind of real insight that we kind of brought out to the market that published in 16 countries was when we predicted the UK general election. Wow. Um, and then we predicted uh, uh, Trump. Uh, we predicted Brexit. Really? Um, yeah. So, so, so what's kind of happening now is we're starting to get a lot of other industries coming to us and asking us how we can kind of help them get a more understanding of, of whether it be um, hedge funds that are looking to understand markets and uh, uh, better or whether it be um, you know, news channels that yeah. kind of reach out to us a lot now uh, to understand. Uh, for example, we're doing uh, you know some uh, some stuff with some U.S. news channels on Black Friday and mm. Cyber Monday, and and what are the trends that people have been searching for, um, and starting to you know predict that. So so yeah, there's uh, over the next twelve months, we're starting to really look at how we can uh, take our insights and start applying that to other industries uh, outside of just advertising. That's very interesting, especially the political stuff, because naturally all the pollsters and and all the traditional ways of of assessing kind of sentiment mm. were completely wrong with Brexit and completely wrong with Trump and mostly wrong with the election. So how did, what did you know that other people don't, basically? It's really interesting because, because you know, when, when, we, when we first, back in, I think it was 2000, 2015, I believe, uh, the, the UK general election, when we kind of predicted that, um, we're going to have put our neck on the line mm. uh, and uh, the exit polls came out and said we were totally wrong. And by that time, it was published in 15 countries. <laughs> okay. There's no going back here. Um, but, um, but you know, when we obviously got the results and found out we were right, um, I think that kind of woke everyone up to the fact how valuable uh, these insights was for, for, for the world. Um, so, so in terms of how we kind of delve into, um, you know, what makes a valuable insight and how we kind of get, can predict those, those trends, um, for purposes of the UK general election, for example, there's obviously a lot of positive and negative searches that happen around uh, leaders, around mm. uh, certain subjects that they're, they're, they're discussing, uh, and just general kind of spikes in, uh, in political parties. Um, so when you accumulate that all together, you can obviously paint a, a truer picture of what's happening. Um, so with Brexit, for example, mm. you know, we actually looked at a lot of the positive and negative searches associated um, uh, throughout, the, throughout the, the UK. So when you actually look at what we publish around the sentiment of search um, and, uh, and the link between kind of, you know, Brexit, we kind of highlighted London, for example, was obviously a key area of, of uh, uh, wanting, to, wanting to remain. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then you had it was as clear as day all the areas that outside of London predominantly that that, um, that wanted to exit. So we kind of produced the map 
and then matched that up to you know the kind of post-Brexit yeah. um, votes, and uh, and it was staggeringly uh, accurate. Have you ever? This is a personal question. Have you ever put a bet? on the outcome of an election based on your data. And um, would that be fair if you did? <laughs> um, no, I, 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 I haven't. Uh, and I wouldn't. Okay. Um, but uh, no, it would probably give me an unfair advantage. So. Fine, fine. Well, next time there's an election, I'll, I'll give buy a pint or something. We'll talk about it. Um, <laughs> one of the things that strikes me, Adam, about you is that you're very confident. You've always had a kind of a, a self-possession um, and, and you know how to talk to people clearly. Some entrepreneurs kind of struggle with that self-confidence. Do you think it's something that they can learn? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think that uh, there is there's a lot of work that have, uh, goes into allowing someone to have confidence when it comes to you know, all eyes are on them and it's kind of make or break if the company succeeds or not. And and I think that what a lot of entrepreneurs uh, fear is the the signs of you know, showing that they might not know something. Uh, when actually one of the best traits of any founder really is is to show that vulnerability because uh, that's how you really get buy-in from everyone and that's how you can foster a, a, and, and nurture um, a, a culture that, that are really open to sharing mm. problems um, and open to fixing problems. Um, so, you know, for, you know, that confidence, I think that part of it obviously kind of comes from kind of going, going through that. But I think realistically, if someone kind of really has the the confidence in themselves to go and uh, launch uh, a company, then that is the main confidence that you need and the self belief that that you uh, that you need to really make a success of it. As long as you're as, as long as you're then learning on that journey around uh, all the areas that you want to make sure you're either hiring better people than you in certain areas um, and having the confidence to do that. Because a lot of mm. people, a lot of founders want to be the smartest person in the room. You know, I, 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 I want to be the dumbest person in the room. I want everyone in that room to be telling me, you know, what I should be doing. Uh, and that's the goal that you, we really want to, you know, strive towards. Um, so really hiring, you know, the best talent and experts in, 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 in those fields. Um, and it takes, it takes confidence to, to go into a room and for someone to tell you what you should be doing um, and you listening to them. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of entrepreneurs fall over because they're, they, they can be extremely stubborn. Um, and there's, there's a difference between um, you know, stubbornness and... Uh, and um, Confidence, no? Yes, yeah, so stubbornness and confidence. Mm. Uh, and I, I think, I think the, the, com- the confidence that someone has to show in that scenario is showing showing the confidence that mm. that they're sitting there and these people are are working with them on on reaching their own goals and reaching that overarching ambition yeah so i think that's uh, that's uh definitely kind of uh how to really kind of get that confidence and i, and I think that really kind of importantly for me what kind of happened was i i, I felt that when i started this journey i was i was becoming someone that i was less comfortable with um, because what do you mean? You, the, your personality was changing, or yeah, I, I felt I felt that I started to kind of put up put up a facade of of you know what I was trying to be. Um, what a kind of bravado, a kind of macho. Yes, yes. Yeah, so, so, yeah. so, so, like what I thought was that anyone working for me, they they don't want to know that I'm kind of doubting certain areas. They don't want to they don't want to see me make any mistakes. So, so what happened was I was going on this journey, showing that I wasn't making any mistakes. So everyone that was working with me um, was so scared about showing mistakes okay. because 
because I wasn't making mistakes or so or I wasn't sharing with them the mistakes that I was making. Mm. Um, so as soon as I started to open up uh, about the mistakes that I was making, all of a sudden everyone else started to open up with the mistakes they were making. So I was so I was so kind of focused on the perception of me mm. to these people um, that it kind of uh, it started to cause uh, started to cause some problems. And I think over the last kind of few years, I've always been you know very kind of open to other entrepreneurs as well about making sure that making sure that you know they feel the confidence that they can show you know that vulnerability. Yeah. Because um, it's incredibly crucial to make sure that you've got you know buy-in from from everyone that you're working with. Wow, that's a brilliant lesson. What what do you look for when you're hiring other people? What are the traits that you admire in candidates? So uh, I think I think for me um, one of the one of the biggest challenges that we've uh, that we've we've come up against as a business is that you know we're now seen as one of the hottest companies uh, in Europe and hopefully soon to be in the world. Um, and because we are seen as that, you start to attract talent because you're that company. Uh, and I, and I think. What kind of happened uh, actually when uh, when we we launched out one of our first international offices um, and uh, it was over in Germany and uh, and I went into this office um, and it was a shell it was it was it was horrible uh, and they, we had so much work to do um, but uh, the MD was there and uh, he started to he he, he said I've started doing interviews already I was like where are you doing interviews he was like here I'm like how can you how can you take people here like people won't want to work here. He was like, no, I, w- I want to I take people here and I want them to show uh, what it is we have now and that they need to roll up the sleeve and help build this. Wow. Um, and it was a really, really valuable lesson because, you know, what happens was we were trying to go, attract this talent, but they were attracted to the name of Captify versus the real people that were going to roll up their sleeves and help build this company. Um, so I think that that's always something that we, we look for. It's not just the people that have been attracted for their own personal benefit. It's someone that really wants to roll up the sleeves and build yeah. with us. And what are the, the cliched answers? What are the red flags in interviews that you think uh, you're, uh, you're not quite right for us? I would say uh, you, can, you can often uh, tell um, people's passion for what they're doing. Um, and you know, passion is also linked to you know teamwork because if you've got a whole team that are passionate about the same things, and then that fosters you know collaboration, uh, and uh, you know is, is incredibly powerful. Um, so I think I think there's there's some definitely some random questions that I ask sometimes. Okay, uh, what's an example of one of those? Um, uh, I I, th- I think for for example, um, in in certain instances, I like to understand. Uh, what role people play in their own friendship group? Oh wow! Uh, because uh, I believe that you know everyone plays a certain role okay. in in, the, in their friendship group, um, and often you could have kind of you know the 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 mother of the group, the organizer of the group, wherever it may be. And I think this is really telling to the type of people uh, that they or the type of person that they are. Wow! Um, so I think there's a there's quite a few questions that I ask around that area to make sure that they are truly a good fit for for the company. Yeah. Uh, what are you in your friendship group? When am I? <laughs> uh, uh, depends who you talk to, but but um, I would say I would say uh, I'm the person uh, that makes stuff happen. Okay, good. Is it easy to tell what what kind of person someone will be in their friendship group? Do most people know? Because you used to kind of struggle to answer that, and I think I would as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's good to see their thinking. Yeah, um, because uh, because often uh, often. 
if you if you can't get an answer, you can kind of throw it a different way and say, well, how will your friends best describe you? Okay, and then you yeah. work out their friendship group. Gosh, uh, the right I, friendship not group, many so. people want that question. Yeah, asked. yeah, totally. Yeah, but but it's, it's a really tough one. But also, also, uh, you know, there is a, a, a perception attached to uh, to people of, of what they want to be perceived mm. as uh, and I think that's also very obvious uh, yeah. because you know they'll, you know no none of no no friend would start to say um, would really say they're incredibly ambitious uh, when they're <laughs> describing their friends oh you should meet you should meet Adam yeah he's incredibly ambitious <laughs> you know you want to talk about the traits that they have yeah, so you can actually start to see um, how people kind of are are really kind of focused on that on that perception uh, mm. versus you know like really someone who's going to be friendly and really values the traits that friend has yeah and talking of friends, uh, how's your work-life balance now? Do you do you have much of a social life, or are you still working those crazy hours? So, uh, so uh, I, I, I'm, I'm uh, very fortunate to have a, uh, a son that's eleven weeks old. Okay. Um, so, uh, so uh, for me, actually, um, I, I he has no he has no idea of how valuable he's been in my life, right? Yeah. Because he just doesn't know what's going on yet. <laughs> uh, but actually, just kind of him. Uh, being around um, that is by far the most powerful thing I've ever had to break away from work um, so because you know when you're holding that baby when you're playing with him mm. and he 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 has to, he, you know you, you, you can't think about anything else because he's relying on you for everything yeah of course um, so uh, I found that incredibly powerful and, and actually uh, yeah, I, I've tried a lot of meditation uh, over the years uh, and uh, I'd find that, that if, if that was considered a form of meditation, that would be the best form of meditation. Not I'm saying I'm not saying that uh, having babies solves everything, <laughs> but uh, but um, but it, I think it's been incredibly valuable to help me really separate kind of my my work and personal life. And now, Adam, I want to ask you a couple more questions about yourself in our kind of our quickfire final questions. So you, we hope you can be as honest as possible with these. Um, who in the world of business do you most admire? So I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say they're they're, they're famous, um, but um, but I uh, I, I basically um, had a, a mentor uh, uh, last year, um, and this mentor um, really opened up my way of thinking in a whole new level, and um, and he he uh, he he had raised over half a billion for companies. He was uh, the he was the MD of uh, Air Miles um, mm. a while back. Um, and he was a just, in, just an incredibly inspirational uh, person. Uh, and unfortunately, he passed away uh, early this year, and and it kind of uh, definitely affected me heavily. But uh, yeah, I sent I sent out a you know message to, to to the company about how you know he was my inspiration, and that the the, why, the reason why he was uh, so inspirational for me was because when when you kind of unfortunately when you kind of sat in you know that 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 room with him um there was no there it almost like nothing else mattered you know he was mm. in front of you and that feeling that kind of he gave you uh and the the advice that he gave was so incredibly powerful uh and it made you feel incredibly unique and incredibly special and then you know i i, I kind of sat at his funeral mm. um and uh, and it was a it was a massive hall there, mm. there must must have been you know 500 people there I mean people standing people wow. can get in the hall it was incredible and then I, I had a moment of realisation that actually that how he made me feel was actually how he made everyone in that room feel um, and I thought that was in, incredibly inspirational so that's definitely someone who I most admire Amazing What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't running Captify? I've always been 
very intrigued uh, with how um, education uh, is developed uh, and the curriculums involved, but also, more importantly, the education in in more third world countries. Um, so, I've always, I, I think, if I wasn't doing catfire, I, I would uh, be interested to work out a way of utilizing the skills that I've developed over the last 10 years and bringing that into the educational system um, so we can make sure that you know, more uh, people have, have you know, the valuable education that, that is actually you know, the route to many problems. Yeah. Uh, when you look at you know, young girls uh, in, uh, in some countries that, that aren't even allowed to you know, study uh, or learn, um, I think that that creates a whole, a whole host of problems. So I'd really love to look at ways of addressing that. And what, what are you most proud of so far in your career? Uh, most proud of? Uh, I, I, I think there's, a, there's definitely a lot, a, lot, a lot that I'm proud of in, in my career, but I think that actually what, what we kind of really get rewarded for is um, seeing, for example, that, that, you know, when I talk about that original team that started with us mm. you know, seven years ago and are still there today um, and seeing them buy their first properties, them getting married, them having their first children um, and then realising that you know, there's over 200 people that are all going through that journey that I wouldn't say we're providing for because we're certainly, we're certainly not but, uh, but you know, just being, being the company that they're enjoying working for and, and uh, really making sure that yeah, they they're feeling rewarded, and we get a lot of really positive, you know, feedback um, for you know the the type of company that we've become, and making sure that we really help support people in their personal lives as well, and make sure that people realise that you know there there's there's important things outside of work as yeah. well as as well as work. Uh, and I think we've we've worked hard to uh, work on maintaining that culture, and mm. and but but the rewards comes from you know seeing all these guys develop. Um, uh, into into you know a lot of the major superstars that have come to today and and you know actually their their loyalty that have shown to us uh, and this company is is uh, you know something I'm incredibly proud of. Yeah. What phrase or convention would you like to banish from the earth? <laughs> that's impossible. Well, oh, that, the phrase that's impossible. <laughs> yeah, that's impossible. <laughs> okay. Yeah, wow. yeah. I I, th- I think you know we, we've we've definitely learned that you know anything's possible. And I think that a lot of people. Uh, say no because it's the easy answer or that can't happen when rea- the reality is of course it can happen anything can happen uh, so yeah that would probably be up there with uh, do people say that to you a lot when you say we'll deliver this they go that's impossible um uh occasionally yeah. um uh, and, and but i i think i think um you know what what, what when you kind of when we kind of you know, throw uh, you know a statement out there uh and uh and and uh People just see it as kind of a, a, a statement uh, without realizing the the steps that we would take in order to get there. Mm. I think that's the difference. So we can kind of throw something out there, uh, and they'll be like, "Well, you know, no, well, that's going to be incredibly hard, if 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 possible at all." Um, and they're actually, "Well, actually, if we get to that stage by then, and that stage by then, why isn't that possible?" And we start to kind of map out what a true uh, possibility looks like. Wow. Um, so, um, so, so, yeah. I, I think when everyone kind of thinks like that and actually kind of breaks it down in terms of the steps to get there, they can actually see that most things are possible. Mm. And what's your biggest fear? What keeps Adam up at night? Uh, <laughs> it's probably it's, it's probably a random one actually. Uh, <laughs> I, I just worry about family, and yeah. friends. 
No, I think yeah, that's yeah. pretty normal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think uh, I think if if I've got nothing to worry about, uh, yeah, because I'm trying to obviously when I when I'm at home, I try not to. I try to break away from the business side. Um, there's always something to worry about that maybe is even even happening. You kind okay. of like right now. I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Well, uh, you know, like, about my son and how he's going to kind of get on in nursery next year and <laughs> okay, you know, all this kind of stuff. So so uh, so yeah. This is always kind of things to worry about. So if I'm worried about anything, it's, pro- it's probably it's probably uh, uh, family related are you a big warrior in general or are you quite a happy guy um i i think i think that i've probably been guilty of uh focusing on negatives too much mm. in the past um but the other side of that is is that uh is that by focusing on the negatives it's allowed me to build stuff faster yeah, of course because uh, it allows you to really spot any kind of weaknesses so I guess, I guess, I, I, I often, uh, you know, when I, when I'm sitting in an interview, for example, you know, or, or, or having this discussion with someone, I could, you know, reel off a whole load of things that are weaknesses, mm. uh, and I, th- I guess that's kind of, I suppose, kind of a strength of mine. Okay. Um, but I think where it becomes a negative is if I'm solely focusing on their negatives and not the positives. Yeah. Um, so I've really tried to make sure that, you know, yes, I understand the negatives, but I need to, I need to understand the positives uh, you know, equally. Uh, and a lot of people, when they're kind of interview, interviewing, for example, they're, they're trying to find a reason to take them on. And I'm trying to find a reason to not take them on. Um, so that's kind of the difference in kind of the way of thinking, but by having that negatives, I think in general, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say, okay. I, I can't say I'm a warrior. Good. No, you seem pretty, pretty <laughs> relaxed. What's the best single piece of advice you've been given? Um, I'd say probably hire people better than you. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that was probably probably up there. I, I remember when, when someone first told me, uh, you know, we need to hire kind of a, this senior person. And I remember it was, the, it was the first time we ever paid a six-figure salary. And, and that first six-figure salary is, you know, is, that's, a, that's a big leap. Because um, you think to yourself, well, that's going to cost me over £100,000 a year. And can I do that? But yeah. actually, the reality is, you know, that person is on that salary for a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so when you start to take that leap and, you know, if it's not working, you have to fix it really quickly because you can't afford to hemorrhage cash. Um, but, uh, but that first leap of taking that first person and seeing the difference they made and you realize that actually, you know, there's, there's a whole host of seniors that could, uh, give you the, the depth to your, to your company that you haven't had previously by focusing on hiring people better than you are in yeah, certain areas. Of course. What's your most treasured possession? Uh, I guess that there's certain things of sentimental value to me, um, which like, for example, beside my bed, I, I have a, I, I have a picture of my, uh, my first day of school. Oh, wow. Um, and, and it's just, it's a Polaroid, uh, and it's like had its day, and it's, and it's in this little, this little, um, uh, well, a very dated frame. Um, <laughs> But but I th- I think that's actually quite uh, something personal to me and and so much so when I when I'm when I moved house, um, you know my my wife kind of is the first thing she put beside my bed. Oh, lovely! <laughs> um, because it's always nice to kind of you know always kind of remember kind of that journey and 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 looking back at, at that where where obviously my son will be in a few years time. So yeah, which book has influenced you the most? Uh, a book called Traction. Great. Who's that by? Yeah. Oh, oh sorry. I right. can't remember the, can't remember the <laughs> author. Um, but um, but incredible incredible book. Uh, I, uh, I I I'm part of I'm part of uh, uh, this group called the Supper Club, uh, and it's kind of leading entrepreneurial uh, club in the UK. And uh, and I, I I messaged them and I, I said to them, 
I, I feel like I'm, I'm struggling to get productivity from meetings in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, can we, can we, could they host dinners for entrepreneurs and you can come together and, and yeah, talk yeah. about any, kind of any issues? Um, so I said, I'd love to have a dinner that kind of focusing on how to get the most uh, productivity from meetings because I feel what, like we're, we're losing that. What was wrong with meetings before? I felt well, we were going into, going into meetings. Um, you know, there were so many, there was, you know, we've, we've got, amazing people that come up with great ideas uh, all the time but you can't do all the ideas so you start to lose focus and then uh, then you come to a meeting and you come out of the meeting like what were the action points of that meeting yeah. uh, and then things aren't followed up on so so what were, and then and then uh, you know there was just a misalignment you know when you spoke to one person in the company and you said what can I do they'll say x and then you, and then you said another, spoke to another person and they'll say x and they were two very different things um, and it created a massive problem so so uh, so when I kind of spoke to a supper club and asked the, them to do this dinner uh, they said have you considered buying this book called Traction a lot of other entrepreneurs have kind of sworn by it so I was like I'll give it a go I, 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 have, I don't read as much as I would like it takes me probably a few months to go through one book <laughs> um, so, so I took Traction on and basically it was it was it was a it was a just a guide of how to bring alignment to the company, you know, the vision, the purpose, the core values, and everything that goes along with it, and then kind of really broken down into into uh, a rock system. So, what's the most important things in the next ninety days that we need to achieve as a business to make sure that we achieve our twelve month goals, and in turn, you hit your three year goals and mm. you hit your vision. So, uh, so I kind of read that and you know started implementing that with with uh, with my business partner, um, and it was it was life changing. Wow. Um, we saw more productivity, more focus, better results. Um, and now, if you kind of spoke to you know, any kind of manager in the company and you said, "What's the most important thing that you need to achieve in the next ninety days that allows us to hit our goals as a company?" They'll reel off a list of you know three to six things uh, that is really important for them. And I think it just brings back alignment. Make sure we, we share that with the company. We, we you know, yesterday we had our end of quarter and we showed them all the rocks that we hit we didn't hit what's the rocks for the next quarter uh why is that our focus and and how are we going to get there um so it really brings transparency and and focus mm. uh, throughout the organization and that all came from that one book that one book brilliant and the supper club as well and the supper who club, we should yeah. plug because we like the supper club. yeah so they're they can, great yeah they're, they're great good. finally what's your personal motto um personal motto if you're good enough you're old enough uh, I, I think I think that uh, a lot. You know, we spoke about age being kind of a factor um, of you know how people may perceive you. But actually, um, if you're good at what you do, you would have that respect, and age doesn't become a problem anymore. Um, hence, why you know people that you know want to take that leap, um, you and and you know start start um, start a company, uh, however whatever age they are. Um, you know they they can they can make that leap, and I've always kind of felt that age shouldn't be a factor of anything, whether it's whether it's young or old. Mm. Uh, you look at uh, you know the the founder of KFC. You know he he started that business I think when he was sixty six years old, um, and became a billionaire by the time he was eighty. Uh, I think that you know that you should really kind of take away kind of age. Uh, as a, as as a problem, really focus on you know having you know the, the ambitions uh, to make sure that you succeed as as the primary focus. Adam, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at the Gents Journal on Twitter at The Gents Journal and find us online at www.thegentlemansjournal.com.